Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, you can turn to uh, Psalm chapter 22. That's going to be our text uh, for this morning. Uh, something that Adrian left out was while I was in England, um, that was kind of the time when I came to this really strong sense of call to the ministry. And the thing that really did it for me was not the amazing preaching. Uh, it was not the music. It was, it was more so just seeing the unity and the joy amongst the saints at the church. And a couple of weeks ago, I was actually here in an evening service, kind of incognito in the back over there, and just like listening to the service and everything, and just loved to seeing the joy and the unity. Uh, it, it was just a reminder of being back in England again, just an affirmation of why, why we do what we do. So really thankful for you guys. Thank you for the opportunity, especially to Paul. He's probably my, by far my favorite teacher at the Master Seminary. Just very clear, and I've just learned so much and really appreciated uh, his influence and his leadership. So Psalm 22 is going to be our text. We're doing Messiah in the Old Testament. We're going into the Psalter for the first time here from Genesis and then Deuteronomy. Now we're going into the Psalter. And this, I want to say, is maybe the most important text when it comes to looking at the suffering of Jesus and the glory that is going to follow in the Old Testament. I think it's such a, it covers such a broad scope of history, of redemptive history. In 31 verses, we're not going to have time to go through all of it, but I want to show you the glory that the Scripture possesses in just this one psalm here, Psalm 22. So read with me, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil doors has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship And those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him, and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. Even that last phrase there, he has performed it or he has done it, is the Hebrew equivalent of what Jesus says on the cross. It is finished. In this, in this passage, you just see such an amazing depiction of Christ's suffering and then the glory which is to follow. And it's so disturbing, the language. It's so graphic. It's probably the most graphic psalm that I've ever read depicting Christ's suffering. I, I came across an article the other day. Uh, it was an article written in 2000 by the editor-in-chief of a, a well-known journal. And he, uh, he talked about his own experience with, with uh, suffering. But he began by saying that we as a culture, we have a kind of, we've kind of systematically moved away from thinking deeply about suffering. We don't like to ponder death. We don't like to ponder suffering. Our culture has kind of sanitized us from thinking deeply about it. And so cemeteries, for instance, are conveniently located out of sight and out of mind. Even funeral mourning rites are way shortened as they quickly anticipate the resurrection hope. Uh, you see the, even the even the Highland Park uh, Highland Park shooting in Chicago. You can see all the politicians kind of panicked, and you can see a little bit of a sign that we haven't been trained as a as a society as a culture to very deeply and properly understand suffering and process it. But the amazing thing that we see in this passage, passage Psalm 22, is we see the suffering of Christ followed by the glory of Christ. And I want to put my main point at the very top. My main thesis for you this morning from Psalm 22 is simply this, is that if you want to understand the glory that is to come, you must first understand the suffering first. Uh, There's a logical sequence there. First suffering, then glory. And before we can understand how to emulate Christ as an example of suffering, we must first be saved by Jesus. We must first understand Christ as our Savior. Indeed, this passage just screams the gospel. And so if you're an unbeliever, this is an amazing text for you to see the suffering of Christ, his, his death on the cross. And even for unbelievers, this is a model for us, examining the way he undergoes suffering, his reliance upon God the Father, and the example he gives to us through that. You'll notice that in verse 2, uh, this is how you can break it up, verses 1 to 21, we're going to look at bearing the cross. It's a very simple way to break it up. Bearing the cross, that's verses 1 to 21, the first part of verse 21. 
bearing the cross, and then we'll look at wearing the crown, and that's the end of verse 21 to the end of the chapter. And the reason I break it up that way, it's not just random, it's linguistic, you can see it in your text, verse 2, it says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And so he begins by affirming that God does not answer him. That's the reason for his plea. And then in verse 21, towards the end, he says, you answer me. So there you see a transition in the psalm where at first he was crying out to God because it seemed as though God was not answering him. Verse 21, it seems as as though God has answered him. And we see a transition in the text from suffering to glory. So that's an easy way to break it apart. And I just want to show you by way of kind of preliminary Look at the inscription, because in the Hebrew text, this is verse 1 of the psalm. It says, For the choir director upon Ahilet Pashahar, uh, that's just the tune of the psalm. It's a song that would be sung in a corporate setting. Um, it says, A psalm of David. Now, we're in the Psalter today, and there's something unique about the psalms. I think there are two, at least two things that are maybe not intuit- intuitive to everyone who reads the psalms. Two things. Number one, the psalms tell a story. The, t- the psalms tell a story. I think typically when we look at the Psalms, we look at it as kind of a disconnected collection of Psalms, but they're actually connected. The Psalms tells a theology. There's a development of thought. There's a systematic development in the Psalms. They tell a story. The second thing you want to know about the Psalms that may be not too intuitive is that the story that the Psalms tell is about Jesus Christ. Not every Psalm is directly speaking about Jesus, but together they point to Jesus Christ And you will know this because in Luke 24, you remember how the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus? And then Jesus is explaining the scriptures to them because they have no idea that it's actually Jesus standing right beside them. They're without hope, even though they have all the evidence and all the scripture. Jesus explains the Moses and the law and the prophets. And then he says in verse 44, he says, the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying that these things speak about me. The law and the prophets and the Psalms, those things must be fulfilled. They speak about me. And so even Jesus affirms that the Psalter speaks of him, at least in a, in a holistic sense. That's about the Psalter. Now look at the author. It says a Psalm of David. So the author of this Psalm is David. And the thing you want to know about David for the purposes of this Psalm is first, he is a prototype. David is a prototype. I get that from 2 Samuel 7. This is a very foundational text because it is what we call the Davidic covenant, where God gives a promised to David, and says, from your line will come one whose throne I will establish forever. His house I will establish forever. That is looking to the future, to the Messiah. That was established all the way back in 2 Samuel 7 as a foundational text which invites us Bible readers to make a conscious connection between Jesus and David. And then if you, if you go all the way to Acts 2, we see a second thing about David. Not only is David a prototype or a type, David is also a prophet. I think typically when we think of David, we think of some uh, what? A shepherd, a king, right? But we don't typically think of David as a prophet. That is Peter. Acts chapter 2, he says that David was a prophet and he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. So Peter affirms it as a prophet, and this leads us to this interpretive question Is this psalm before us talking about David or is it talking about Jesus? Who is it directly speaking about? And I want to argue to you that I believe that this is speaking directly about Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps there's a sense in which David can resonate with the language because he is a lesser David. He is connected to the Messiah, as we looked in 2 Samuel 7. But I believe this text is referring to Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is in this one psalm alone, seven times it is alluded to in the New Testament. And every single time it is referring to the same person, Jesus Christ, and to the same event, the crucifixion. If you look at Matthew 27, or if you look at Mark 15, you'll see what I'm saying. That's an amazing use of scripture by the New Testament author that I think affirms in a very powerful way that this psalm that you see before you is a powerful prophecy of Jesus Christ. Typically, when people try to look to Jesus, they tend to go to where? The Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But you can look right here. You have an amazing portrayal of the Gospel in this one psalm. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said that David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will neither see nor care to see David. Before us, we have a description both of the darkness and the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ, and the glory which shall follow. Now, I want to look at this text in two parts, that bearing the cross and then wearing the crown. And I want to just show you three aspects of Jesus' suffering. We don't have time to go through every single verse here. I just want to show you three aspects of his suffering. First, I want to show you the separation. This is what is happening, and it's all encompassed right there in verse 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. In an economy of words, right there we see that what is happening to Jesus, it is this feeling of forsakenness. Uh, the, we know that on the cross when Jesus hung, there were seven famous sayings that he said. And Matthew, the New Testament writer, he records only one of those last sayings. And it is this one here, chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a significant statement that has traveled through the early church and it captures such emotions, uh, such, a, such a deep emotion is captured in just this one verse here, Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, a lot of the, the theological di- dilemma here, obviously, is did God really separate from Jesus here? And we know that that's not true. Michael Horton, he, he writes about this in, in an article where it's not that Jesus is literally being separated from God, but what is happening here is that God is present but in a qualified sense, God is present in his judgment. And we see that even in Exodus. Darkness encompasses the, in the, the nation of Egypt, and he is there, but in his judgment rather than his blessing. And so here on the cross, when he utters this saying, it is at the end of the sixth hour. From 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. it was daylight, and then 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. it's darkness in the sky, and he's crying out to God at the very end of the at 3 p.m. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels as though God has forsaken him. And I guess in a way that we can kind of relate with that, I saw an article in uh, the Gospel Coalition by uh, this, this lady. She was talking about uh, how she had a, uh, one of her sons uh, got his, his, both his hands crushed in a mechanical, mechanical machine. And he was only 10 years old, and immediately her parents were thinking about, what, what are we going to do with this, this kid? Like, you know, all the sports he's not going to be able to play. What is this going to do to his future? And they take him in the ambulance to the hospital, and everybody's worried about his condition. 
and he ended up losing a lot of his joints, and they're waiting in the waiting room for hours and hours, praying and crying out to God, and the mother of this child relates that she felt as though God had forsaken her, that God was so distant from her. She was going through this this really tremendous time of suffering, and where was the help? She cried out to God, and she didn't get an answer, and she relates later on how God was there, but in a qualified sense. That in her, in her moment of misery, she was no more reliant, she was, she was more trusting, more reliant upon Jesus in that moment of darkness than she ever was in her entire life. And oftentimes suffering does that to us. It, it causes us to trust in God in a unique way. It causes us to run to God in a, in a unique way that maybe we didn't before. When things are going okay in our lives, it's easy to kind of go autopilot and not think about Jesus. Typically when things are difficult, you have suffering. Then you come to Christ, you come to cling on Him, and he, you, you perceive, perceive Him in a very unique way. So that's what happens, it's the separation. And then I want to show you how it happens, and I'm just going to title this scorn. There's such scorn that is leveled against Jesus, such disdain, such despising that is leveled against Jesus. This is how Jesus is treated. Look at verse 6. He says, but... I am a worm and not a man. This is the same Jesus who said, I'm the bread of life. The same Jesus who said, I'm the light of the world. The same Jesus who said, I am the true vine. The same Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That same Jesus here says, I'm a worm. He's in the lowest point of his life under great duress, under great suffering, and even Isaiah 52, you can see parallels to Isaiah 52:14, where it says that his face was marred beyond human resemblance. So tortured was Jesus that you could barely even recognize his face. I, I thought of this story many years ago in a, in a racially tense environment in Mississippi, a boy named Emmett Till. Maybe you guys recognize that story, the name Emmett Till, who who whistled at a, at a lady at a, at a, at a grocery store. Uh, she complained to her older brothers, and he was kidnapped from his house, and he was taken to a bridge area, this, this shed, and they took a hammer and just started beating his face over and over again. And you could see the picture of his face later, and his mouth is like on another side of his face, and his nose is another part of his face, and his eyes are like down where his mouth was. He was just so brutally treated by these older brothers. And as if that was not bad enough, they took him and wrapped him and threw him over a bridge into the water. And the mother of the child uh, had an open casket service, and she wanted the whole world to see what they had done to to this boy so that all generations would remember what they did to him. I thought of Jesus, you know, marred beyond human resemblance. It's hard to imagine because we don't normally see that today. But this is no ordinary man. This is the son of the living God, marred beyond human resemblance for our sin. I thought that's just amazing. We see how he was so treated with scorn. And we see that he was treated even in a a very sacrilegious way, in a very blasphemous way, in a very irreligious way. I noticed as I was just reading through this text, if you look at verse 7, the beginning, It says, all who see me, they sneer at me. All who are looking at me, they're mocking me. And then if you look at verse 17, it says, they look at me and they stare at me. 
Jesus, as he's laying on this cross, he is conscious of the fact that people are looking at him, not out of reverence, but out of repulsion, out of hate, out of mockery. It's very human. You can see even the humanness in that, that he is conscious of the fact that people are looking at him. I thought of Isaiah 6. You see this beautiful vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus, of God who comes down on this throne. And Isaiah is seeing this vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And then there are these angelic seraphim that are specially fitted for the environment of heaven. Just as fish are specially fitted for the environment of the ocean, you see these angelic seraphim specially fitted for the environment of heaven. And two of their wings, they're given six wings, two of their wings they use to fly, two of their wings they use to cover their feet, but two of their wings they use to cover their eyes. They shield their eyes from the presence of God because they understand the reverence that is due to God. And yet you see these men in Psalm 22 who are fitted for the earth, creatures, these putrid, unholy men, who have the audacity to look directly into the face of Jesus and not to praise him, not to have reverence for him, but to mock him, to spit in his face, to joke about him. And if they turn their face away, it is not out of reverence, but out of repulsion. So we see the separation, we see the scorn, we see even the sacrilegious way that he's treated. There's one more thing I want to show you when it comes to to the suffering And it's the sensitivity of Jesus. It's the sensitivity of Jesus. This is the significance of his his death. You see how sensitive Jesus was to the pain. You see how personal it was. If you look at Psalm 22, you'll be amazed to see how many personal pronoun languages used here. It's, It's my and I. You say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my, my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Over and over again through this psalm, you can see the my and the I used. It's a very personal psalm. It's a very intimate psalm. Jesus deeply feels the pain that is being leveled against him. And I thought of the, uh, the woman in Mark chapter 5. The woman in Mark chapter 5, the, the woman with the hemorrhage, she had a 12-year condition. She had this blood disease where the blood kept overflowing, and she went to many different physicians. None of them could do anything to help her. Uh, She spent all that she had, and she was not getting better. Indeed, she was getting far worse. And then she resolves to herself, I'm going to touch the edge of his cloak, and if I just touch the edge of his cloak, maybe I will get better. That's what she tells herself. And she secretly touches Jesus, and immediately, the text says, immediately she perceived in her body that she had become well. And the very next verse, it says, and now keep in mind, Mark has labored to show us that there are tons of people around Jesus. Many people are touching Jesus at this moment. But the next verse after she's healed, it says, immediately Jesus perceived in his own body that the power had left him. All of these people are touching Jesus externally, physically. But Jesus was intimately aware of one woman touching him and the power being expelled from his body to this one woman. Now, if Jesus was so intimately conscious of the divine healing that was channeled from his body to one unnamed diseased woman, just imagine how intimately aware, how intimately conscious Jesus would have been of the divine punishment channeled from the Father to Jesus Christ in the space of three hours for every single sin 
of every single sinner who would ever believe in him. All of the physical suffering you see on the cross, that is grotesque, it is, it is annoying, it is, it is hard to bear, it is disturbing, but all of that pales in comparison to the spiritual suffering of Jesus atoning for the sins of man, for Jesus being crushed by Jesus, by God the Father, rather. I had a student in, in a high school ministry, I serve in high school ministry at Grace. I had a student come up to me and he... He asked me after the end of one of the sermons, he just asked me, uh, uh, how is Jesus' death any different from the death of a soldier? You know, you can find a bunch of patriotic, patriotic soldiers who die for their country, and they suffer. You know, maybe they have their limbs torn apart. And what about Jesus? What makes his death so different? I remember even reading in history that before Jesus even arrived on the scenes, under the reign of one of the evil kings, Antiochus IV, uh, women who were circumcising their babies, he would have them uh, crucified on a cross naked, kill their babies, and have their babies slung for, uh, around their necks. This was before Jesus even entered the earth. And so this practice of crucifixion is very common. It was not unique to Jesus. Crucifixion was practiced pretty perverse, pervasively. And so what makes Jesus' death so unique? What makes it so unique is that on the cross, Jesus, as the divine Son of God, is bearing the wrath of God, like we just said. It's the spiritual suffering. He's atoning for the sins of men. In the space of three hours, God is treating him as though he lived our life. Isaiah 53, 10, it says that God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Galatians 3, 13, it says, he became a curse on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' suffering was unique in the sense it accomplished something, and God is cursing him. The ultimate agent of his suffering is not even these men. It is God himself who is crushing him in our place. And you think all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The promise there, the first gospel there, is that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. But what is the manner in which Jesus crushes the head of the serpent? It is very atypical. It is very unexpected. Normally, if you watch a movie, a Marvel character or something, you know, they beat the enemy in a very uh, pompous way, in a, very, in, in a way of gusto, right? They beat the enemy, and it's great, and there's a lot of applause. But the way that Jesus crushes the enemy is a little bit unexpected. Because he crushes the head of the serpent. He crushes Satan by yielding himself to the Father to be crushed by his Father. It is only when he is crushed by the Father that he then crushes the serpent. It's an amazing picture of Jesus' humility, his suffering, the atypical way in which he suffers for mankind. Now I want to move to the second part. Running out of time. They're wearing the crowns. We looked at bearing the cross and now wearing the crown. Those are just a couple of verses I want to show you here. Verse 22, uh, we just read that in Hebrews chapter 2. And Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now, if you read that Hebrews 2 chapter closely, you see a dramatic change in the relationship. You see, when Jesus died for his elect, when he died for his people, there's a change in the relationship. They're no longer distant. They're no longer sons of wrath. They're no longer sons of disobedience. 
He calls them brethren. They've changed dramatically in their relationship. They're now called brethren. He says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. And he proclaims the name of Yahweh in the midst of them. You see in just this one verse, you see Jesus' immense reliance upon the Father. And even throughout the psalm, you can see that over and over again, Jesus is trusting in the Father. Jesus is trusting in the Father. If you look at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, he's crying out to God. But then in verse 3, he says, yet you are holy. He affirms something about the character and the holiness of God. In you, our fathers trusted. You delivered them. But then he comes back to verse 5. He's saying, but I'm a worm and not a man. And then again in verse 9, he says, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust. So again and again, you can see how he's, he's toggling between his present suffering and then he's rehearsing God's past faithfulness. You can notice that, just the movement in the text. He's, he's, he's suffering, he's, he's crying out in the present, but then looking back to the past to give him confidence. And then he comes back to the present again, and he's, he's worried again. And then he goes back to the past, and he rehearses God's faithfulness. And then in the beginning of verse 22, he looks to the future. I will tell of your name to my brethren, of the glorification of the Messiah. A second thing you notice here is this great reaction. So that's a great reliance. You see a great reaction. Look at verse 27. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. What are they remembering? What exactly are they remembering? They're remembering the suffering that you just saw in the first part of this song. See, if this was talking about David, this would be quite blasphemous. Because if they were remembering David's suffering, and then they're turning to the Lord, that does not describe David's life. But here you see very clearly, it says, all the ends of the earth, they will remember this day of suffering, they will turn to the Lord. You see, it's repentance language even captured there. They will remember this day and they will turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations will worship before you. You see a great reliance in verse 22. You see a great reaction in verse 27. But you also see a third thing. You see a great ramification, a great result, a great effect. In 30 and 31, it says, Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will yet be unborn that he has performed it. This gospel message will go forth, not just in that area, but to all nations. And it looks forward to that time when Jesus will return in the millennial kingdom. He will establish his throne. He will be the fulfilled Davidic king. And it tells us something even interesting about the reason why Jesus saves people. He doesn't save us just so that we can go to heaven. That is true. But he saves us that we might become kingdom citizens of his kingdom. And one day, Jesus will come down, literally come down, establish his kingdom on the earth. He will reign, and we will be his kingdom subjects, and we will worship him forever. That's what this psalm is looking forward to. It's saying all the ends of the, of, the, of the earth will come to him. All the families will come and bow before him. It is looking forward to that day when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's the great hope. That's the reaching outward. That's the great hope, the future expectation that we have. And from these two parts of the psalm, from Psalm 22, we learn so much about our Lord that can give us solace, that can comfort us. Just notice his unique response. Like when you look at Psalm 22, does Jesus even one time 
ask God to kill his enemies? Not once. The entire time in this psalm, he's praying directly to God. He is silent before his enemies. We read about that even in Isaiah 53, 7, that he was oppressed, he was forsaken, yet he didn't even open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, and he did not open his mouth. He was oppressed. You even know that in today's culture, we have a tendency to divide people into the oppressors and then the oppressed. But if there was anyone who is more oppressed, most oppressed, it is Jesus himself, right? He was the most oppressed, and yet the way he responds to insults and abuses is not demanding his rights, it's not protesting, it's not going into the streets and holding up a sign, he's just silent. And First Peter says that he entrusted his soul to the one who judges righteously. Therein lies a great application for us that when we are insulted, when we're slighted, we can model the humility of Jesus. We can model how he relied upon the Father. We can model how he silently entrusted his soul to the one who judges righteously. There was no plea for vengeance. He's silent before his accusers. And yet he's not silent about his pain. He still talks about his pain to God. Did you notice that? He's very transparent in the song. He's very open. He shares these really intimate moments. Even his moments of seeming, it looks in the test to be doubt and pain and suffering, he brings this all to God. And the easy application for us there is like when you're going through suffering, you can be transparent to God. You can pray to God, these are the things I'm suffering through. Uh, This is a difficult situation I'm in. Father, help me. This is good. We're invited from Psalm 22 to to even model this prayer of bringing our suffering to Christ. And then look at his unique resilience. Just look at how resilient Jesus is throughout this. I just told you, like, if if you observe the grammar of the text, it's going from present to then past to present, then past, then present and past, and then he looks to the future. There's so many moments where he could have theoretically given up, and yet you see Jesus stays faithful to the end. In the darkest hour of his life, he remains faithful. And how much more now? If you've been saved, if Jesus has saved you graciously, he will keep you to the end. And you know that from Philippians 1.6, that great verse, He said, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ. I've often found this to be the true, that, you know, it's easy to just trust God as a Savior, and we can trust Him there, and it's great. We're like, awesome, that's amazing. But then in our sanctification, it can be often difficult to just trust Him continuously. We can trust Him to save us, but not even to sanctify us. But here we see Jesus being so resilient and we can trust in God to be faithful, to be merciful to us. And there's a last thing we can model with Jesus. Last thing we can notice here is the unique result of his suffering. There's a lot of people who look at the way that God treated Jesus and they accuse God of being a divine child abuser. They accuse God of being a cosmic child abuser. And it's so distorted. Because if you just look at the result of Jesus' suffering, it is a unique suffering. Look at the result. His suffering accomplishes redemption and reconciliation of mankind. No other suffering does that. 
you know, if my grandmother passed away, you know, I might go to her funeral. You know, friends of mine, family of mine might come to the funeral service and we might mourn for her. But her death wouldn't accomplish anything by way of saving people. When you look at Jesus' suffering, his death actually accomplished something tangible. It, it accomplished the redemption of mankind and reconciliation of mankind to a holy God. That offer of salvation you can receive through faith. That's the only thing that we're told to do. Jesus accomplished it. You saw it at the very end. It says, it is finished. Jesus accomplished all of it. And the only thing that we are told to do is to exercise trust in what he did. Here you see in Psalm 22, Jesus is suffering and the glory that is to follow. There's no reason why you should not believe Jesus from this testimony here. The only thing he's asking us to do is trust in him and we're delivered of all of our sins. An amazing result of Jesus' suffering. If you look at Matthew 27, while Jesus is being harangued by the chief priests and the Pharisees and by Pilate the governor, Pilate brings out Barabbas, who is a notorious murderer. Brings out Barabbas, and Barabbas is one of the worst of murderers, one of the worst of the killers. Pilate is thinking in the back of his mind, surely these people would have the good sense not to crucify Jesus instead of Barabbas. To his shock, the people choose to let Barabbas go free, and they choose to have Jesus be crucified. Now, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because if they chose for Barabbas to be crucified, all of them would end up in hell. Because could Barabbas save them? Could his suffering save them from their sins? Could his suffering save them and reconcile them to a holy God? Absolutely and unequivocally not. What they meant for evil, having Jesus be crucified, ended up making the way to redeem mankind to God. I believe that there were probably few in that crowd that very day who were saved on account of that. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Just the unique effect of his suffering. You, you see a paradox in the psalm. I want to share a, a poem. And it's a collection of Puritan poems and prayers. And the opening prayer is a prayer by the author, author Arthur Bennett. And it, captured, it captures this uh, sort of paradox really well, I think. He says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, and that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find it, thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. 
Psalm 23, it says that in the deepest valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil for what? For God is with us. Yet in Jesus' deepest valley, where was God? He was forsaken by God. And Jesus was forsaken by God in our place so that we might trust in him, be saved by him, sanctified by him, and have his everlasting presence with us. And that's the joy that we hold. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word that never returns void. I thank you for this unique paradox that we see between suffering and glory. And Lord, how the gospel is the only logical way of explaining it. Uh, We know that suffering exists in the world. We know that there's pain and there's anguish. And we thank you for the example of your son who suffered in a way that is unparalleled, unmatched. And Lord, we thank you for how your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in the stead of sinners, that whoever believes in him may be saved and be given everlasting life. Thank you for that example. Thank you for the gospel that we see in this song. Lord, I pray that as the saints depart from this place after we sing, Lord, I pray that even one point might influence their thinking, change the way that they relate to others, increase their unity and joy towards one another, change the way that they relate to their coworkers. Lord, I pray that this gospel would be taken forth from here to the ends of the earth, and even by your saints here at Bethany Bible Church, that they would take the truth here, share it with their coworkers, and that it would go out and that your name would be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.